Warning! The contents of today's show might shock you. Podcast host reveals the hidden life of this Amazonian fish. Marine biologists hate him for using this one weird trick. You can now impress your friends with this new information. Listen on for three ways that this fish inspires inventors. You won't believe number three. Oh hey, I didn't see you there. You're listening to Biodiversity, the podcast about pelagic paradigms and coral curiosities, where we bring the best in flippin' fun fish facts straight to your ear holes. It's like we're the delivery drivers of peer-reviewed aquatic science, the grub hub of fish food for your mind, the DoorDash of dope decapods. Here on the show, we examine the weird, the wacky, and the wonderful diversity of life that lives under the crashing waves of our blue home. Using cutting-edge science as our guide, we dive deep into both the common and the rare, the exotic and the ugly. So tune in for the tuna, stick around for the scorpion fish, let's descend. Today on the show... We're talking eels. Electric eels. Ah, yes. The zappy danger noodle of the Amazon and beyond. This wriggly river fish may not be a real deal eel, but as we embark upon this spiel to reveal their appeal, they'll steal your ideal of what it means to be an eel. Maybe these awesome facts here too, to you, have been concealed, but today I hope you learn enough to feel what you must feel, in order, of course, to love upon this eel with all your zeal. I'm talking to you, Neil. That's right! Today we are trading in salt water for fresh and venturing out of the sea and into the water basins of South America. Now, the oceans of our planet are host to a lot of cool diversity, and I love them. But, where there is water, there is life, and the floodplains, swamps, and rivers of planet Earth are no exception. These environments present some unique challenges to living in them, which, you guessed it, leads to some bonkers cool solutions and adaptions. And the electric eel amps up the voltage on the Uniquitron to 11. So, let's talk a bit about what this cute zappy boy actually is. Thing is, when we're referring to the electric eel, we aren't even talking about a real eel. What? It's called an eel, but it's not really an eel? Mind blown, and we aren't even ten minutes into the podcast. No, our zappy slime spaghetti is, in actuality, more closely related to the noble and delicious catfish than any moray eels you might see swimming out in the sea. See, the three known species of electric eel are actually a different kind of fish entirely. A knife fish. Edgy name, right? These knife fish are anguilliform, or eel-like, in their form and method of locomotion, but that's just about where the similarities with true eels end. True eels can be crazy colorful, and the electric eel is usually a shade of brown. True eels have two sets of jaws with razor-sharp teeth to tear at their prey, and the electric eel's mouths are relatively weak, and they tend to just swallow prey whole. And, of course, the electric eel can generate dangerous bolts of electricity, something true eels cannot do. And you know we don't discriminate here on the show just because something isn't considered a true member of something. 
So while the more than 800 species of true eel can have some truly stellar adaptions, colorations, and unique traits, and we should all love them still, by the end of the episode you will be shocked at just how much you love the electric spaghetti too. Up until 2019, a mere few years ago, there was only thought to be one species of electric eel in the whole wide world. One species unique to its own genus. But that all changed when the scientists attacked. In a paper published that year in Nature Communications, the authors rejected the old notion that merely one species existed, and proposed that enough genetic, morphological, and ecological data existed to support the classification of two new species, in addition to the old known one. These three now-described species are the original species, Electrophorus electricus, who was described by Linnaeus, the father of taxonomy himself, back in 1766, and the two new ones, Electrophorus veri and Electrophorus volti. Here's a fun fact. The new species Electrophorus volti, whose common name is the Volta's electric eel, is a world record holder! This new, exciting species on the block holds the record for strongest bioelectricity generator that we know of in nature. That is, of all known species in nature that can generate electricity, you know, without a household outlet or AA battery, and there are quite a few, our friend Volti generates the strongest shock of all of them. And until the discovery of the two new species, Electrophorus electricus was the previous record holder. It was recorded at producing around 650 volts in a single shock. Electrophorus volti, however, has been measured at a whopping 860 volts, blowing that old record out of the water. Now, sure, high numbers are impressive, but they don't mean much without context. So let's think about this. In the United States, a common wall outlet supplies 120 volts. In Europe, this rises a bit to 230 volts. But that is still a mere fraction of the supply potential from the electric eel. The eel could supply our most power-hungry appliances and then some. And when it comes to the lethality and actual danger of the shock, there's a quick side note here. The voltage alone isn't the only player in how dangerous an electric shock is. There are other factors such as how wet the thing the electricity is passing through is, and how resistant to the electrical flow that thing is. Uh, all of that kind of contributes to how fatal, painful, and damaging a shock can be. But to a dry human, a 600-volt shock from Electrophorus electricus will be painful, but likely not fatal. That said, however, things do change with those conditions, and in the wrong conditions, even a 120-volt outlet can trigger cardiac arrest in a human. And Electrophorus volta can supply more than seven times that amount. That is absolutely crazy. Now, strength aside... All three species can generate and use electricity for both sensory purposes as well as predatory ones. A lot of people tend to think that for animals, electricity is only good for hunting, you know, for shocking prey, but that's simply not true. Just like it is for us humans, electricity is a multi-tool for the eel. Not only can it generate enough of the stuff to stun or kill its prey, it can also generate weaker fields that it can use to see its surroundings. 
to navigate the murky waters that it calls home, and to even potentially communicate with other eels. That's because it is also electroreceptive, meaning that it can sense and see invisible electric fields. Now, there are a lot of animals out there, on the order of thousands, that are electroreceptive in this way, but a significantly smaller number of animals are capable of bioelectrogenesis, that ability to make your own shocks and your own fields. And electric eels? Yeah, they do both. And more. So not only can they do this high-voltage, heart-stopping electrical cannon, they can purposefully generate and use lower-voltage shocks and fields too, which have many mind-boggling applications. Like I said before, these fields, when combined with the electroreceptive sensors on the fish's head, they can sense the size, shape, and even texture of their surroundings and also use it to communicate with other fish. And they do have a few even crazier powers with these fields, but I'm going to save those as a little bit of a surprise for later. I'm so mean, I know, but you're just going to have to keep listening if you want to know. In the meantime, here's a fun fact that definitely won't keep you up at night. Us humans will never know what it is like to sense and to see with electroreceptivity. These eels and thousands of other animals can see electricity and we just can't, and we'll never know what that's like. We just have to imagine, and we have to live with that. The eels can exert this level of fine electric control, generating and bending electricity to their purposes, because they have three, count them, three, organs inside their six to eight foot long bodies that are responsible for electrogenesis. Oh, yeah, side note, I haven't mentioned the size of the eel yet, have I? That's right, this wrinkly murder ramen can be up to eight feet in length. That is a huge noodle, and the majority of that noodle is filled by electric-capable organs. The main organ, the hunter's organ, and the sax organ. That's S-A-C-H-S, in, in case you were curious. All three of these organs work in tandem to give the eel its fine electrical control. The main organ is located on the dorsal side, what you might consider the eel's back, stretching from just behind the eel's head to about the middle of the tail. The hunter's organ parallels the main organ, only it's on the ventral, or belly, side of the fish, and it stretches all the way to the tip of the tail. So if you've been following along, you'll note that this leaves that rear dorsal area open, which is where the sac's organ nestles itself. By and large, the main electric organ and the hunter's organ are responsible for the high-voltage deadly shocks that they use for hunting and defense, and the sac's organ is the one responsible for the low-voltage field generation. That might be a bit of an oversimplification of a very complex process, but the analogy works for our purposes. So the next big question is this. How do these organs, wet, squishy, squelchy things made of cells, actually make electricity? So it's time once again to talk fish physics. Ah, this is becoming a theme on the show, but I just can't help it. It's just so exciting. Fish physics, 153% cooler than regular physics. Tell your friends. Sorry in advance, but this one is a little term heavy, so 
you know, dust off those school-age flashcards. Electricity is a huge and complex topic, but for now, let's remember the following. It all starts in the presence of an electric charge, either positive or negative. The simplest building blocks of matter, like the elements that make us, can have a charge. An electric current is generated when those electric charges actually get off their lazy bums and move. Technically, that flow of charge called current is kind of the deadly stuff, not voltage by itself. Okay, whoa, whoa, that's kind of confusing, so let's get our heads around this for a second. For this discussion, it's useful to think about electricity as a whole as kind of like water in a hose. Voltage is kind of like the supply of water or the pressure of the water coming through the hose, while current is the actual rate of flow of the water actually going through and coming out of the hose. That current is determined by both how much pressure or voltage is coming through the hose, as well as how much resistance is slowing that flow down. Put them together and Bam, you get a measure of how deadly the shock actually is, that current. So in this analogy, low current is kind of like being blasted by a garden hose, while high current shocks are more akin to the ouch of being hit with a pressure washer. So while higher voltage usually means more current, more ouch, that's not necessarily always the case. So that's how it works in batteries and electric circuits, but what about biology? I mean, the episode is about an eel, after all, not about how to wire your house. Well, like I mentioned before, electric charge is a basic property of matter. You know, that stuff that we're made of. So those basic building blocks, again, the elements of the periodic table, can be either positive or negatively charged, depending on their makeup of protons and electrons. So the basic building blocks that make us can just be electric intrinsically. Following along so far. Because of this, all living cells, including ours will produce an electric charge. It's just a normal fact of biology. If you imagine any given cell as a circle, there are more positive ions, like potassium, calcium, and sodium, floating in the goop outside that cell than inside the cell. That means there's a larger positive charge outside than inside, and since like a lot of things, this system naturally wants to equalize, this generates a potential. The charges want to flow but they can't because they're blocked. This generates something kind of like a pressure pushing against the circle of that cell's outer membrane. A pressure, huh? Okay, review time. What's the term for the quote-unquote pressure of the electric system? If you answered voltage, you might have a promising career as a physicist or an electrician. In physics, Voltage is technically defined as the difference in this electric potential from one point to another. In this case, cell voltage is measured between point A, inside the cell, negative, and point B, outside the cell, positive. Our human cells, just like the ones inside you, have a resting voltage of about 0.085 volts. Not very much, right? You couldn't shock a flea with that power supply. So the electric eel must have a way to increase the voltage of its own cells, right? Well, no, but actually, kind of yes. They don't do much to each individual cell's power. The eel's cells within their electric organs, which are called electrocytes, by the way, 
have pretty low resting voltage too, just like ours. They just put the magic of good interior design to work for them. So here's a fun related question. How many batteries are in a single 9 volt battery? You, you heard me. I didn't misspeak. How many batteries are in a single 9 volt battery? Well, it, it, it's just one battery, so it, it's just got to be one, right? Is it nine? The answer, of course, is six. Six batteries. Totally obvious. Truth is, if you look at a standard 9-volt battery, peeling back that hard casing, it's not actually one cell that produces all 9 volts. Most commonly, it's actually six individually wrapped 1.5-volt batteries all connected together inside the casing. And if you add up all six instances of 1.5 volts, bam, 9 volts. Since they're connected in the right way, positive end to negative end, they are connected in series, and they add all of their voltages together to get a cumulative total. Science, baby. So back to the eel. As it turns out, they do the exact same thing. You can think of electrocytes in these fish as tiny, fishy batteries, but unlike our absolute mess of cells, Electrocytes are stacked in these incredibly long chains. So while each cell alone might be weak, with thousands stacked together, they are mighty. Mighty enough to add up to that 860-volt shock. So, with all the pieces in place and the electrocytes stacked as they should be, it's time for the crescendo of this piece, the actual electric shock itself. Voltage is all well and good, but at the end of the day, the eel needs movement of the charges. It needs current to get the shocky show on the road. And the chain reaction of this shock spaghetti's guts is pure poetry in motion. So when the eel wants to shock, its brain will send a signal down the eel's nerves to the electrocytes. When that signal hits, functionally, little channels open up across the cell membrane, allowing all those positive ions that were floating in the goop outside to rush to the inside of the cell. This causes a shift. Instead of negative inside and positive outside, one side of the cell becomes negative and the other side becomes positive just like a battery. That movement of charge now becomes possible. Eager electrons move across the cell to try and equalize the charges. And with the movement of that electric charge finally happening, we have current. Do this with all of those electrocytes stacked together, positive to negative like batteries in a flashlight. They provide an additive high supply of voltage, meaning a massive current and bam! Zappy, shocky, fishy dinner. These same physics come into play for the sensory applications too. Using the same arrangement of electrocytes and existing charges, the eels can generate a cohesive and constant electric field with less power. It's constantly going, but only on the order of a few millivolts. Disruptions in this field is what those sensors on the face can pick up, and how they can use electricity to sense their immediate environment and communicate. Some eels even use this in courtship and mating. I mean, I've heard of sparks flying in romance, but these eels just had to be extra about it. Now, all of that electricity coming from the fish isn't just a danger to potential prey. Electricity is a powerful weapon that can even endanger the eel itself. 
I mean, you'd think when wielding such a potent force, you'd figured out a way to be 100% immune to it yourself. But the truth, just like the rivers that they call home, is muddy. In a twist of fate, electric eels can actually shock themselves. When some eels discharge their shocks, you can see them visibly flinch. But science speculates that there are ways that the eel reduces the damage, from its sheer size, to special insulating proteins, to how the eel actually positions itself when it shocks to try to keep the vital organs out of the way. I mean, after all, if a shock from an eel could potentially stop a human heart in the right conditions, it's not hard to imagine the amount of damage that they could do to themselves. So, with great power comes great... Did you think we were done talking about how cool the electricity of this wily eel is? Not even close. You'd think that the unique ability to shock prey into submission would be enough. But if there's anything that I know about this fish, it's that it is not happy unless it is being extra as hell. So no, in addition to being an electric brute, the electric eel also demonstrates a fair amount of cunning. And by cunning, I mean that it can literally reach into the nervous system of another fish and control it like a puppet on invisible, zappy strings. And that's not really an exaggeration, either. Studies into the hunting ability of the electric eel show that there are two sides to the electric coin. It can both send shocks to immobilize unsuspecting fish but it can also send shocks to force them to move in a way that the eel wants them to. They do this with a periodic volley of two or three special electric discharges. These discharges are special in that they mimic, or at least resemble, the electric activity of motor neurons in the prey fish. Those neurons are part of the nervous system that enables muscle contraction, so in response to a similarly shaped shock, the fish's muscles involuntarily move. So, in a very real sense, electric eels can control their prey fish, causing motor neuron activity, which essentially means they can control the fish's muscles. In the wild, it's speculated that this is used in a situation like when the eel knows that prey is nearby, but can't see it. That doublet or triplet of pulses goes out, and it causes a huge involuntary contraction of all of the prey fish's muscles at once, which usually forces them from their hiding spot. Then one full-powered volley later, and it's game over fishy-fishy. The fact that they can use electricity in the first place is mind-blowing, but using it to remotely control the nervous system of another animal? Let that sink in! I mean, true eels may have two sets of jaws, but I would rather face the pharyngeal jaws that inspired Ridley Scott's aliens than a monster that could cause every muscle in my body to contract at the same time from a distance, just because it wanted to. That is terrifying, but also remarkably beautiful. Like, I love your creativity, you shocky noodle, you. Okay, so at this point we have big shocks, we have small shocks, and we have controlling prey from a distance. I mean, 
That's gotta be the last and coolest thing to cover when it comes to electric eel hunting behavior, right? Not even remotely. <laughs> see, see, see what I did there? Remotely? From a distance? <laughs> yeah, you get it. It gets even more terrifying than that. I mean, electric eels are already bigger than you, ranging from that 6 feet to 8 feet in length, so dealing with one is enough. But what if you had to deal with hundreds? Recently, observations on our record-holding friend Voltai, the Volta's electric eel, has witnessed them hunting in packs. Like wolves. Or dolphins. Like, what the actual f- Up until now, it was assumed that electric eels were solo hunters, but that all changed on a lake in the Ariri River in Brazil. There, scientists observed over 100 eels all inhabiting the same waters. And they weren't just there to hold the biggest eel rager this side of the Amazon. They were actually all cooperating together to hunt. When the twilight hours of dawn or dusk hit, the eels began swimming together in circles in what I can only legitimately call a whirlpool of electric spaghetti. Move over, Sharknado, there is a new disaster movie in town. This behavior forced shoals of their intended prey fish, thousands of these little tetras, into tightly packed balls, and when the time was right, a couple eels would break off and swim towards the ball and deliver that characteristic zap. The shock hits so hard that the tetras were sent flying into the air and raining back down into the water stunned. And now that they were motionless in the water, the buffet opened up and the feasting began. Again with the being extra, it's not enough to just have dinner, you have to have it raining down from the heavens with all your eel pals. Maybe, maybe this is just an eel rager. Cooperative behavior in such an already dangerous predator. I mean, just, wow. I mean, I'm shocked, are you shocked? It's currently not known if this unique behavior is just exhibited in the eels in this one particular lake, but as of now, it is the only place that it has been observed. I mean, still, though. Alright, they might be called electric eels, but electricity isn't the only crazy thing about these fish. Here's another way that they break the fish norm. Electric eels don't really have functional gills. A fish without gills, breathe that in for a second. I mean, they have them, but they don't actually work to pull oxygen from the water, so they can't actually breathe water. They're air breathers, like us. They actually have to return to the surface to gulp air every few minutes, and to do that, they have lungs. Kind of. Okay, this bit is absolutely crazy to me. So remember the healthy majority of the massive body is taken up by the three electric organs, and they also have to have room for things like their stomach, their brain, and their heart. Uh, this body plan isn't super conducive for big old air sacs how we think of lungs. I mean, literally the only place that the lungs could potentially be is in the head, and I don't know about you, I don't want no inflatable life balloons up near my brains. So... Mother Nature decided to think outside of the box and did away with the whole balloon concept entirely. Instead, 
electric eels have a huge amount of blood vessels in their mouth that directly uptake oxygen from the air that they breathe. It's direct-to-bloodstream air delivery via mouth lung. Like, dang, Mother Nature, you creative. So, the gills that the eel has... They're kind of the way that the eel exhales. They're used to expunge carbon dioxide, not to uptake oxygen. Inhale through the skin of your mouth, exhale from your neck slits. Whoa. However, this solution is not all lung roses. It does leave the mouth pretty sensitive, and sort of a weak area for the fish. You know, riddle me this, how many times have you injured the inside of your mouth? I bet it's a lot. I bite my cheek, burn my mouth, or generally injure myself way too frequently to be comfortable, and most of the food that I eat isn't covered in scales or pointy spines. Now, imagine that each time you injure your mouth, you suffocate a little. Gross. Well, th this is sort of, kind of, almost exactly what the electric eel has to deal with. In fact, the weakness is so prominent that some scientists actually theorize it's the reason the eel evolved shock as its main method of attack. A stunned prey fish doesn't wiggle or writhe while it's being gulped past your mouth and towards your stomach, and that's a huge boon to the sensitive mouth of the eel. Especially when that prey has those tough scales or spines. I mean, I've heard of inhaling your food, but this is ridiculous. Considering the wealth of knowledge that we now have and are still discovering about the eels' hunting lives, what kind of things do they get up to when they're not searching for food? Well, it turns out not a whole heck of a lot is known about the life cycle and behaviors outside of the hunting realm. Something about it being kind of hard to observe a fish in naturally murky, dangerous waters, especially when that fish is nocturnal. I mean, do you want to be out in a river filled with electric eels in the middle of the night? I mean... I do, but I already know that I'm weird. So, with as difficult as they are to actually study, it's truly a gift that we know what we do. And we do know a little bit about their reproductive habits. It seems that spawn times are related to the wet and dry seasons of rain, with most observations putting spawning during the dry season or right at the start of the rainy season. And the males put in a surprising amount of work. The current story goes like this. The female is thought to be a fractional or batch spawner, that means that several times during the dry season, she'll release a batch of eggs, which the males will build a nest for, and they do it with the utmost love and care, with their own saliva. Once the nest is built and well hidden from any would-be eel-eating predators, the male will actually stick around and guard the nest and defend it with gusto until the rainy season, when the fry will presumably hatch. Behavior after this is largely unknown, but it is assumed that the males are also the ones that provide parental care if there is any to be performed. This is a species with a rather high fecundity, meaning that the average female can lay between 1,730 and 3,063 eggs in a year. That's a lot of little eels. Papa's got his non-existent hands full. You know, beyond that, there doesn't seem to be a lot of consensus on how these animals meet, mate, or travel. More mysteries for science to investigate. But whatever it is they do, they do it pretty well. They're currently quite abundant through their range in South America, and are listed at least concern on the IUCN Red List of Endangered Species. As of 
2007 anyways, and that's just for Electrophorus electricus, not the two new species. Still, though, it seems that the strategies they've adopted to survive and thrive do work. It wouldn't be a biodiversity discussion without talking about the relationship that these special fish share with us humans. And like a lot of these stories, it focuses around the gifts that the electric eel has given us or inspired in our scientists and inventors to push humanity to new heights. If you're listening to this podcast, chances are the electric eel touches your life on a daily basis. But, like, not in a creepy way. Even if you don't live in South America. Turns out, most of today's technology wouldn't even be possible were it not for research into the electric eel. And that's because the very first battery to provide constant current is attributable to research into its electricity. This is an interesting tale of two men, two rivals, Luigi Galvani and Alessandro Volta. Both of them were Italian scientists and colleagues, but they would find themselves clashing as intellectual rivals every now and again. Both were intrigued by animal electricity and how to harness that power, but before the turn of the 19th century, their conclusions about the source of electricity were at odds. In one of Galvani's experiments, he connected frog legs to each other with metal wires, and in doing so, saw the dead animal's legs twitch. So his conclusion was that there was a sort of intrinsic electricity within the frog's legs, and the metal wires were acting as a conduit for that electricity. However, Volta was not so convinced. He thought that the metals themselves were the source of the electricity. He set out to prove his theories, researching, among other electric fishes, the electric eel. And the biological design of the electric eel helped inspire Volta's world-changing invention, the voltaic pile. Remember how electric eels stack electrocytes on top of each other, adding together their small voltages to form a bigger current and shock? Well, around that turn of the 19th century, Volta created something similar. His was a pile of zinc and copper discs separated by cardboard soaked in salt. When the top and bottom contacts of the pile were connected by a wire, bam, he got current. Electricity. This disproved Galvani's theory and also earned Volta the title and moniker of Father of the Modern Battery. This was revolutionary, and it led to the many modern-day incarnations of batteries that you use on a daily basis. Think of all the inventions and technologies that we use that use batteries. We literally would not have gotten this far without it. Add to it, too, the fact that many modern-day scientists and engineers think that building better batteries is the key to a more energy-efficient and sustainable future. We have a lot to thank the electric eel and other bioelectricity generators for. And it doesn't stop with batteries, either. This eel isn't happy without going the extra mile, remember? The wondrous danger noodle of the Amazon basin has also inspired and continues to inspire breakthroughs in medical science, too. For a long time now, it's been known that electric eels are a source of a chemical called acetylcholinesterase. As someone who works in pharmaceuticals, I was poking around looking for reagents one day online, and it came to a surprise to me that we could potentially just 
buy this acetylcholine esterase sourced from electric eels. Now, this chemical is an enzyme, a protein that breaks down another chemical called acetylcholine. You may have actually heard of acetylcholine before. It's a chemical in your body that functions as a neurotransmitter, meaning that it helps signals from your brain move throughout your body to the places those signals need to go. This, this is important in general, but it becomes increasingly interesting when we start to look at neurodegenerative diseases, such as the devastating Alzheimer's disease. Studies into Alzheimer's have found that an afflicted person's brain has less acetylcholine than a non-afflicted individual. With lower levels of the neurotransmitter, everything from brain function and cognition to motor function can be inhibited. While research into Alzheimer's disease and other dementias is still ongoing, one current route for treating symptoms is to block the action of acetylcholinesterase and other enzymes that break acetylcholine down. By blocking the action of that enzyme, the levels of acetylcholine in a person can rise, and through this we have found some success in treating the symptoms of Alzheimer's. Now, this is not a cure, it does not work for everyone, and it certainly has some risks, but even this small amount of progress is thanks, in some part, to research made possible by acetylcholinesterase that we have extracted from electric eel tissue. There's still so much we don't understand about brain chemistry, but if nature has helped teach us and inspire us to this sort of progress that we've already made, who knows what the future will look like? Maybe it'll be a future without Alzheimer's or other dementias. Wouldn't that be something? And speaking of the future, there's one last practical eel-inspired application in medicine to get excited about. Building our own synthetic electrocytes. Using the electrocytes from the eel as a inspired blueprint of sorts, there has been some research done into replicating this cellular system synthetically, basically a man-made electrocyte cell that mimics exactly how the eel does things but with a power boost. Research into this has produced a design for an artificial cell, a protocell, that is similar to the electrocyte, but has both higher output and higher efficiency. This kind of technology is incredibly exciting, especially when you consider its use in medical technology. I mean, even today, there are all kinds of medical implants that require electricity to operate, and the kind of hydrogel battery made with these eel-inspired protocells could be the future of their power. I, I want to read, really quickly, a direct quote from the abstract of a 2017 paper by Thomas Schroeder and his colleagues, word for word. When looking into this hydrogel battery, they said, quote, Unlike typical batteries, these systems are soft, flexible, transparent, and potentially biocompatible. These characteristics suggest that the artificial electric organs could be used to power next-generation implant materials such as pacemakers, implantable sensors, or prosthetic devices in hybrids of living and non-living systems. End quote. Guys. Guys! Hybrids of living and non-living systems. This is such exciting potential. Also scary, but I mean, it might just be that I'm a total nerd for the cyberpunk genre, but this is nuts. 
the kinds of things that we might be able to treat, the technologies that we can improve upon or invent with a better battery like this, it is incredible and every bit worth getting excited about. Put it in retrospect, all of this progress that has already been made and the future map of progress that can be made all from information we have learned from an Amazonian river monster. I mean, just thank you, you Amazonian masterpiece. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I want to thank these amazing creatures for being so cool, but I can't hug one to express my gratitude. No? Just me? Well, lucky for all of us, there is a fun way to connect with this amazing creature and spread the word of its, well, amazingness. You see, at the Tennessee Aquarium lives a very special electric eel. His name is Miguel Watson, and he is the world's first tweeting electric eel. I did not misspeak there. This special boy has his very own Twitter account, which you can go and follow right now. You can find him at Miguel on Twitter, and I'll link that in the show notes as well. Every time Mr. Watson feels a bit shocky, his electricity is used to shoot out a tweet, letting you know that he's feeling jolty and hoping to inspire conversations about his remarkable species. And it's actually pretty cool how it's done. Probes in the water will actually detect the electricity that Miguel discharges, and that electricity is harnessed by the aquarium to do all sorts of things, from power a light bulb to light up a Christmas tree. But it also flows into the fuse box with a little bit of fun computer code that helps translate that bioelectricity into Twitter power. I mean, a tweeting electric eel. We live in a world where a fish named Miguel Watson can produce electricity and use Twitter. Our world is awesome. I don't think there's a better way to end this episode than with that. So that's going to do it for today's episode of Biodiversity. Go follow Miguel right now and spark some cool conversations about this eel that's not an eel for those who aren't in the know. And as you charge through your lives, using your computers and phones and the batteries that power them, be sure to think about how this wonder of the Amazon made today possible. I cannot wait to see how this fish is going to shock us next. I'll see you guys next time. <laughs>